0: In July 1991, something was on the railroad tracks just outside of Williamston, North Carolina. But that something turned out to be a someone. I'm investigative journalist Delia Diembra, and in this season of my show Counterclock, I dive into the mysterious death of Douglas Wagg Jr. And how questions about exactly what happened to the 27-year-old have gone unanswered. You won't see the twists coming. Listen to Counterclock Season 6, wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Take a
3: little picture. Christmas was a fucking debacle.
4: I had to move my flight because I found myself at a blackjack table and I couldn't leave because I was winning. It was actually one of the few times that I won a pretty good chunk of money. So I'm just playing and time's ticking and going. I'm supposed to be heading to the airport. And there's a point where I just say, fuck it, I'll just move my flight. I ended up winning, getting on an airplane, going back to Colorado with 80K in my pocket. I had eight $10,000 bands on all kinds of pockets, you know, jeans, jacket, inside, outside. I didn't know how that would affect the metal detector, so I was a little nervous. It's not illegal to fly with money. I just didn't want to have any attention right now. So I was really nervous about that. But I finally land home.
2: Tony Carleo had come home for Christmas, and this time of year was usually one of his favorites. For a guy so close to his family and friends in Pueblo, Colorado, coming home meant reunions, late-night hangs, long catch-ups, and quality time with nieces, nephews, siblings, and parents. But this year, in December of 2010, this year was very different.
4: Christmas dinner, I was at my sister's house that year. I've seen pictures of that night. I can provide them to you. I have no shame. I should have shame. Dude, I look dead. I'm doing the heroin nod. It's embarrassing. Here my grandpa was, I walk in the door. He's just happy to see me, you know, smile. And I have a picture with him too. It's a good moment, but man, I fucking look like shit. Just like this close to death, dude. Like, you know what I mean? Like the antithesis of health.
2: Tony's condition had to do with a lot of things. Lack of sleep, a poor diet, and a full-blown Oxycontin addiction, which he was trying to hide from his family. There was also the constant stress due to the fact that he was one of the most wanted men in the country after robbing the Bellagio Casino in Las Vegas, something he was also keen to keep secret. And in the midst of Christmas dinner, surrounded by the critical eyes of his own family, It was obvious something was up with Tony, as Lacey Carleo, Tony's sister, remembers vividly.
1: He was just gray. He looked like he was about to die. He would stop talking for a moment. He seemed really distracted and not him. I knew he was on something, and I was
0: really worried about him.
2: Across town... Kara Correnti, one of Tony's accomplices in both the Suncoast and Bellagio robberies, had also returned home to Pueblo, in a similar bad state. However, Kara didn't have the weight of major secrets weighing on her. Almost immediately upon returning to the safety of her family, she'd revealed her role in the robberies to her parents and siblings, and named Tony as the thief. She told them she was afraid, that she felt threatened by him, which seemed to encourage them to take the weight of this secret off of her shoulders and make it their own. Yet, her own addiction to Oxy brought Kara and Tony back together over the holidays in Pueblo.
0: I saw him in Pueblo. I got some more pills from him at that point. Everything seemed fine. It seemed like back before all this shit happened. I was still kind of worried about him, because he still seemed like he was strung out. I didn't want anything bad to happen to him. I really didn't. But I think he thought he was getting away with it. I think he thought that he was untouchable. He seemed back to his confident self.
2: Despite the stress, the exhaustion, and the paranoia, Tony found his groove back at home. Meeting up with his old crew, bouncing around Pueblo like he owned the place, and doing everything in his power to keep himself from divulging his big secret. Pueblo was familiar. Pueblo was safe. And after a week, well, Pueblo was kind of boring. So
4: I'm home. I got 80 or 100K in my pocket. I'm in Pueblo, Colorado, and that's not really a hot spot on New Year's. I, for some reason, wanted to go back to Vegas and was gonna get there at all costs. I should've stayed home with my family and enjoyed quality time, but my degenerate ass wanted to go back to Vegas and hang out on New Year's, be a big shot. Turns out it cost me damn near $100,000.
2: From Waveland and Pegalo Pictures, This is the High Roller Heist. I'm your host, Chris Sills. Chapter 6, Year of the Cranberry.
4: I don't know if you believe in divine intervention or not, but God put every single roadblock in my way to not let me go back to Vegas. It was a fucking blizzard of all blizzards. I had to rent a car. I had nobody to go with. Like, the day before I'm trying to go, trying to call every girl that I could to go with me. Nobody, you know, was too short notice. They didn't want to go. So finally, I just call my buddy Alex.
5: He called me the night before New Year's Eve. It was probably 10, 11 o'clock at night said, hey, do you want to go to Vegas? And I was like, yeah, sure, when? And he was like, oh, about six, seven hours, I'll pick you
2: up. That's the same Alex from Chapter One, who was Tony's buddy in high school and a partner in their homegrown weed business. He, too, was addicted to oxy and enjoyed a good time, making him the ideal wingman for this particular
5: Vegas New Year's. He picked me up early in the morning. I can't remember times was exactly, but it was early in the morning. We were running short, and had some issues getting there. I have to drive
4: to Denver in a fucking blizzard. I packed a carry-on bag. It was only supposed to be a two, three day trip. I left my big luggage at home. I go through airport security in my little duffel bag that I just grabbed off my mom's floor and put my shit in. And the security belt stops. I'm like, hey, man, what's up? And he's like, just hold tight, sir. We have something to talk to you about. And I'm like, oh, what the fuck? Now I'm like tripping. All this weird shit's going through my head. I'm like, what in the fuck is this? Turns out you're not supposed to bring the bag that you took to the gun range that has shell casings and shells in it through airport security without taking them out first. So they bring me across like, what is all this? I'm like, oh my God, dude, honestly, just fucking take all this shit, put it in a trash bag. I gotta go, this plane's leaving in like 10 minutes. I don't care about the bag, it's a mistake, I'm sorry. So they sent me on my way. We get off the plane in Vegas, Alex and I, you know, weather's a lot better than it was in Colorado. I had my Lexus at the airport. We get in there, we go to the Bellagio. You know,
2: New Year's, get checked in. The duo's first move was to stock up on party supplies. Luckily, Tony knew some people.
4: Weed wasn't really legal then, so I had to call the homie, we'll get some weed from him. I got weed, but I didn't have any paper, so I went down to the gift shop to buy like some blunt wraps or cigars or something to just cut it and roll it up. And as fate would have it, there was a pretty attractive girl in line and she smelled the weed on me.
2: Tony's new friend offered to roll them a blunt if she could join their entourage. Alex and Tony happily agreed, inviting her back to Tony's fully comped suite. (laughs) Turns out she has a friend. So
4: she calls her friend down there, we start hanging out and we're gonna like go to dinner later and all this shit. And we have a good time.
2: (laughs) (laughs) The foursome bounced around the Bellagio from the suite to the bars, a little gambling, and back to the suite, making the most out of the final hours of 2010 leading up to midnight. And it wasn't long before Tony looked to
5: escalate things, inevitably turning to his drug of choice, Oxycontin. We partied, and he was extremely... High on Oxycon, I was also high on Oxycon, but not as high as he was. And I remember him putting quite a bit of money in the safe. In total, Tony had put about
2: $100,000 in cash and chips into the hotel safe. And with that money now secure in the suite, the crew headed back down to the casino floor for dinner and some more gambling. Not the best idea when one is stoned out of their mind on Oxy, but Tony was a man on a mission. And tonight, that mission was to impress his new lady friends. After dinner, I ended up making a
4: pit stop at a little high limit area at the Bellagio. It's like a little piano lounge. They have one or two blackjack tables, roulette wheel. It's a higher dollars, small intimate area, kind of classy. I don't know why I went in there. I it just seemed like, you know, it's New Year's, I can just go sit down, have a drink and try to win a few bucks. Well, I sit down at this table, I start betting thousand, two, three thousand, whatever hand, and I start losing. So I'm just like pressing. Next thing you know, somehow I'm like betting the table max.
5: I remember sitting at the blackjack table, you had ten thousand dollars out on a blackjack hand and the dealer was sitting there looking at him and I was watching the dealer and I looked over at him and he was kind of drooling. I had the elbow on him and I'm Like <laughs> He was nodding off at the table with the $10,000 hand out there. So I blow through all the chips I
4: have on me and then I had to like go up to the room and get more cash. I'm like, fuck that.
2: I need my money back. Once again, Tony was chasing the money, almost always a losing proposition. So he went back to the room, got more chips and cash out of the safe, and return to the table, determined to beat the house at their own game. You could probably guess what happened next. Didn't end well. Alex said he's
4: tried to, like, get me away from the table. Hey, come on, man, let's go. Like, on The Exorcist, my fucking head was spinning, like, get the fuck away from me. I was in the zone. I end up losing 70 grand on this table on New Year's Eve. It's just about... Everything I had, chips and cash, but I had more in the room. I left, got more cash and chips. I had the girl with me up in the room. I had a pill bottle, which was a perfect width for the casino chips to fit in. I had three or four $5,000 chips in there.
2: Now armed with more Bellagio chips, Tony headed back to the table, yet again. And from this point forward, in a mix of booze, gambling losses, and oxy, things got hazy. That is until Tony, finally beaten, returned to his room. This time, without one of his female companions.
4: When you punch your security code into the safe at the Bellagio, the code remained on the screen for a few moments after you entered it. Long story short I got robbed.
2: It was New Year's Eve in Las Vegas, and Tony Carleo, the biker bandit, was speeding towards rock bottom. Out of his mind on drugs and booze, he burned through nearly $70,000 in cash and chips at the Bellagio's high-stakes blackjack table. And after returning to his room to check what he had left, he discovered he'd been robbed. The robber dude got robbed
4: by some chick. She ended up taking 20K out of my safe.
2: My heart just dropped. Turns out, flashing your sudden wealth around two perfect strangers while drinking heavily and snorting narcotics to the point of being nearly incapacitated made you a really easy target.
4: I'm like, what the fuck? Am I tripping? I call Alex to go, hey man, where you at? He's like, oh, I'm down here at Starbucks. It was like 6 in the morning. I'm like, Where are these fucking chicks at? He goes, they're in the room, ain't it? I go, no, bro. I go, did you get in the safe or anything?
2: He goes, no. I'll never forget it, man. Like the timing of all this. But the two thieves had seen Tony lose a lot, nearly $70,000 that night. And as it turns out, they left him a parting gift.
4: She left 10K. Maybe she had a heart. I don't know. So I just lose my shit. I'm tripping. Taking a 70K hit and then losing 20K, category, that's a number. The highest dollar amount that I would have had is like 400 grand, because that's about the max value of the chips that I could cash in. So it's not a stretch for me to say that New Year's was like the nail in the coffin.
2: And it was here, in the early morning of the first day of a new year, that Tony took one more trip down the rabbit hole. New Year's Eve was a dark detour for the biker bandit, but he was about to prove he had a lot further to go the day after
4: New Year's, I was pretty upset. It was real foggy. I was doing a lot of fucking drugs. I remember Alex and I like having a heart to heart. He finally like told me he was worried about me. I'm doing a lot of drugs, and that's when he told me like how many pills he saw me doing in a day like and really quantify it and put it into perspective. and I don't know if I received it well because my my headspace wasn't right, but we weren't arguing, but we got, we, you know, got a little more heated than it needed to be. But it was coming from a good place, and I probably should have let it resonate a little bit more with me. In hindsight, New Year's was a significant low point.
2: As Tony lost his grip on the fortune he'd stolen from the Bellagio weeks earlier, unbeknownst to him, the situation outside of that high roller suite wasn't favoring him much either. The authorities were now circling him as the prime suspect in the Bellagio robbery. And, also unbeknownst to Tony, his New Year's escapade had triggered something known as an SAR, or a suspicious activity report. As lead LVMPD detective Sam Smith explains.
3: SARs were basically designed to prevent money laundering. It became very important, especially after the 9-11 attacks, because up to that point, you'd bring in cash. From other countries, you could bring in other money that you had, you gamble it, you turn it into chips, you put it back into the cage, they give you cash back, and it was never tracked. So you could bring in money from all over the place, turn it in, wash it, and then get the chips back. Also, it's a huge part in laundering money for drug cartels. Since 9-11, they put a limit on it. They track everything. $2,500 and above. So if you have a big win, someone's going to record that. It helps law enforcement and the casinos
2: cooperate with that. So when Tony Carleo's name became attached to an SAR, the report quickly found its way to Sam Smith, who took the opportunity to dive into Tony's past. We did a huge financial workup
3: on him. First, we went to Nevada Gaming And we saw how much he had lost because you have to report those losses. And he had lost a considerable amount of money back at the Bellagio. We did a financial workup and in 2008, he declared bankruptcy and he had stated that he had no means of income. And then we looked at loss record, not even what he lost in the poker room, but just in the casino in general. And it turned out he lost $109,000. Red flags have gone off everywhere. That's how we initially started putting it all together. The little things that you do in the beginning of, of an investigation are so important.
2: Later on, it turns out to be huge. Another one of those little things Detective Smith came across was the name of an associate who also had a police record in Las Vegas, Kara Correnti. At first, she was just another name on a long list of people who had interacted with Tony Carleo until an incident occurred back in Colorado that would put her squarely in the sights of law enforcement.
0: My family, they were just worried. They're used to crazy shit happening to me. My life has been so insane, so they weren't shocked. They were just worried. And I did tell my family what happened. And that was probably a mistake because my sister ended up telling her ex-boyfriend, and then he's the reason the cops ever had me on their radar in the first place.
2: And this is where fate once again comes into play. This time in a six degrees of Pueblo, Colorado sort of way. Bear with me here as to what happened next. Just after New Year's, Cara Carrente's sister's ex-boyfriend was allegedly involved in a domestic violence incident, and local authorities were called to the scene. And when it seemed like the ex was going to be arrested, In desperation, he offered the cops on scene the one piece of information he had that he thought might save him. The officers went out,
3: and the one male individual that was involved in this told them, hey, I know who did the Bellagio robbery. (laughs)
0: wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Upon arresting a man who claimed to know the identity of the biker bandit, Pueblo law enforcement took the next logical step and contacted the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. We were contacted by these officers, and we were thinking... We really got to get up there and talk to her. And with that, Detective Sam Smith was off to Puebla, Colorado.
3: Puebla is kind of an interesting town. It looked like it was uh, an industrial older town, working class.
2: The local officers drove Detective Smith to Kara Carenti's parents' place, where she was staying, a move that, ever since Kara had divulged the truth about the Bellagio robbery... Her parents had been anticipating.
0: My dad got me an attorney, actually, just in case. They found out where I was at, at my parents' house. They flew all the way to Pueblo from Vegas to come talk to me. And that was really traumatic. Police! I really did not want to talk to the cops. They were knocking on the front door and my attorney's like, don't let them in, do not let them in. You know, like he kept saying, don't let them in. And they're like, well, you know what? We have a warrant here for her arrest if she's not gonna cooperate with us. My mom was crying and praying and just a mess. My dad was a disaster. Everybody was just a wreck. And I was just like, just let him come in. I'll talk to him. And then I gave him my statement.
3: Cara laid everything out for us. She told us they were dating. She told us about his background. She told us that she was in Las Vegas at the time of the robbery. She told us that he did the robbery, that he carried a gun. She also said that he used track phones, which are burner phones. And she told us that she helped him tape padding to a suit that he was wearing, because he was wearing a one-piece, like, overalls. And if you remember, when he talked to the confidential source that we had, he said, that's not me, that guy's too fat. Well, he did that on purpose, and she used duct tape to keep the padding in there.
2: Armed with all of this new information, Detective Smith and the local authorities sought to acquire a search warrant for Kara's car, which had been recently impounded. So we did the search warrant on the
3: vehicle. We found the packaging for the burner phones that she told us about. And we also found the duct tape that she used to, to put the padding into his overalls. And then we also found receipts as to where they bought it. And it was right before the robbery. And then also up in Pueblo, what we did was he was telling everyone down here that he sold his motorcycle. He didn't have a motorcycle. Well, we actually went to the dealership that sold him the motorcycle. And early in the investigation in Valet, when he got out at the Bellagio, there was someone in Valet and he gave us the specific name of the motorcycle. So we go up to Colorado, up to Puebla, and Carleo had that exact motorcycle. And we got the paperwork for that. Puebla was really very, very beneficial for us.
2: All evidence was now pointing squarely at Tony Carleo as the man behind the daring Bellagio robbery. And authorities were not going to let him out of their sights. We
3: were able to do electronic surveillance on him, which you are able to put geofences on cell phones. We were very close to him. We didn't want it to happen again. We were like, we got to get eyes on this guy. And the crazy thing was he was staying at the Bellagio.
2: (laughs) While authorities fully expected their thief to return to the Bellagio to try to cash the chips, it was quite a shock when they learned that the thief was actually living at the Bellagio in a comp suite as a high roller. Something that the Bellagio's VP of Security, Ray Brown, was less than happy to discover.
3: We find out where Carleo's staying, and we go talk to Ray. Uh, Ray, we know where he is. All right, good, good. He's on the 17th floor of your casino.
1: He's like, son of a
3: bitch! Get this guy, we're gonna go, I'm gonna get him. We're like, Ray, Ray, calm down. He's like, no, I want to go, I want to I do it. I was like, great, no. So we let him stay there. It was actually very beneficial for us because it was in a place that he was comfortable with, obviously. And the chips that he stole, he was washing back into the casino, in his own casino. So we're like, "All oh, right, leave him there. We know where he is. We can set up great surveillance on him. This is exactly where we want him.
2: Meanwhile, at the Bellagio and right on cue, Tony's paranoia was starting to get the better of him.
4: I was walking through the parking garage one day at the Bellagio, and I had some chips on me. I may have had a cranberry or two on me. I would always park in the garage, too, because if I didn't want to go up to my room or whatever, I wanted to go to the car, I needed to do some drugs or do whatever. I would kind of park in the parking garage as opposed to valet parking. And I just, I don't know, I got a really weird feeling like someone was watching me and it just kind of freaked me out. But Tony
2: didn't listen to his gut. Not at that point. Because he was down big time, which meant he was once again going to have to chase the money. At this point, as Tony saw it, there was only one way he could make that happen.
4: I had essentially and effectively run out of cashable stolen chips. I had burned through all the cash I had, and plan B that shouldn't even have been a plan at all was to convert these $25,000 chips to cash, somehow, some way. Desperation brought me to the place where I really didn't have any other choice. So I had a couple options. One of them was to seek out some wealthy gamblers and go off from this $25,000 chip, In their hands it's worth that much because they could get it cashed and you know, sell it for five, 10K, and maybe a bulk deal on a few of them. There was a few people that I had my eye on that I w- would have liked to have a conversation with. From the poker world, I know Phil Ivey plays there a lot.
1: Phil Ivey joins the likes of Stu Unger, Ted Forrest, and Chris Ferguson with five World Series bracelets.
4: He would have been ideal, man. I don't know if he would have been open to it or not.
2: It's a little presumptuous of me, but he was the kind of guy that's a hand of blackjack for him. Rightly so. Even Tony recognized that a superstar poker player might not be very receptive to some sleep-deprived stranger strung out on Oxy approaching them out of the blue and offering a 25K cranberry chip in exchange for $10,000. So he looked for other ways to move the cranberries eventually turning to a tool beloved by all thieves and money launderers, the internet. There just came a point where I stumbled across some forum
4: on this uh, 2 plus 2 website.
2: Tony was surprised to find that the Bellagio heist was still a topic of conversation on poker forums across the internet. And the mystery of the missing cranberry chips was actually on the mind of a lot of users. Okay, so Matt Brooks is his name. He lives in Virginia. He
4: put out a post or a thread or whatever you call it, postulating or forming a question. Hypothetically, if you could get your hands on these, how much would you pay for them? He's just starting a conversation with the other assholes on the internet, right? I see this and I'm like, all right, well, we'll see what this turns into. I do
2: everything right, man. I go buy a
4: burner phone.
2: I go to UNLV Public Library. Ever the slick criminal mastermind Tony created an email address to join the poker forum and hopefully move the cranberry chips. That email address? Cranberrykid25 at yahoo.com. What else would you name it? Next, he needed to create a username for that forum. That username? Oceanspray25. And lastly, he needed a location as required by the terms and services of the website. That location? the made-up country of Cranada. My friend Tony, ladies and gentlemen.
4: I send this dude an email, but it was something to the effect of, hey man, if I hypothetically could get my hands on one or two of these, would you be interested in them? I portrayed myself as a middleman, like, hey man, I'm not the guy, but I know a guy that knows a guy that knows the
2: guy. I always trade some distance between myself and the robber. Matt Brooks, who went by the username ProvoTrout, was obviously intrigued by the messages coming from user OceanSpray25. And so, he asked for proof that the man he was corresponding with actually had possession of the cranberry chips. Tony was happy to oblige.
4: I sent him a handwritten note and wrote on there, Cranberries are good for the liver or kidney. And I signed it, Biker Bandit.
2: The actual note read, To Provo Trout, Good luck, my friend. Biker Bandit. P.S. Cranberries are good for the liver. Tony snapped some photos of the handwritten note, attached them to his latest message, and sent them across the internet. And with that one message, Tony Carleo, all but assured, his own demise. So we
3: had this individual contact us and it came in through Crime Stoppers. He stated, I have an individual that is trying to sell me cranberries. But Tony took a picture of the cranberry and sent it to him and he says, Oh, it looks authentic. And Tony wrote on the bottom the biker bandit with the cranberry on top it was just like uh, okay okay so that's where we got our
2: uh, computer forensics involved that's next time on the high roller heist This episode of the High Roller Heist was created and produced by Eli Chorus and Joshua Schaefer of Pegalo Pictures, and executive produced by Jason Hoke of Waveland. Written by Joshua Schaefer. Edited and assembled by Christy William Schaefer. Hosted and co produced by me, Chris Sims. Co produced with interviews recorded by Nicholas Sinakis. Theme music and score by Joshua Klebe. And with sound design and sound mixing by Craig Placke. Recorded at Side 3 Studios in Denver, Colorado. With engineering by Lucian Nichola, production legal by Sean Fawcett at Raymond Legal and Sarah Burns of Davis Wright Tremaine. A special thanks to the Denver Chop House and Brewery. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review.